If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 10. We're getting close to the end of Mark chapter 10 as we continue in our series, Jesus According to the Bible, an exposition of the Gospel of Mark. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we just sang, You are our Savior and our King. And we thank You, Father, for Jesus, who, though rich, yet became poor for our sakes. Father, we thank You for this record of our Savior and King, Your Word. Father, would You open Your Word to our hearts and open our hearts to Your Word this morning as we, Your gathered people, come. Father, would You give us attention to Your Word Would you give us understanding of your word and a growing desire and ability to put your word into practice? Be with us now, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, and I think um, the rest of the world even precedes the church in terms of just thoughts of Christmas. Um, I mean, everywhere you turn, even though Jesus is excluded, um, the thought of uh, gift giving and gift receiving is, is not just included, but um, uh, very much promoted. And it just dawned on me as I was picking up the bulletin at Staples yesterday, hearing, as it were, Christmas music, music that even mentions Christ and the coming King and salvation, it dawned on me that most people hearing those words in the store don't know who Jesus is. If they, if they do have an idea, they may be confused. And so how important is it to get our understanding of who Jesus is from God's Word? Where are we in Mark? Well, of course, we're in chapter 10, but we're with Jesus and his disciples on the way to Jerusalem, where Jesus has made it very clear that it is Jerusalem where he will suffer, die, and be raised from the dead. Mark is 16 chapters. The first eight chapters primarily center on the person of Christ, and the last eight chapters on the work of Christ. And in chapter 8, verse 29, we have that confession of faith shortly followed by, in in verse 34, a call to discipleship. Mark is writing, and as he writes, he's asking and answering three questions. Who is Jesus? And the answer we've seen thus far is he is the Christ, the promised Messiah, the King. And we've also begun to answer the question, well, what did Jesus come to do? He came to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed. But we don't yet know why that's the case. But we're going to begin to today. And there's also that third question that that Mark is asking everywhere in his gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus. How should someone respond to the person? who Jesus is, and how should someone respond to the work, what Jesus came to do? How should someone then, 
How should someone now respond to the person and work of Jesus? Well, if you've ever been on a tennis court or a volleyball court, you may have heard this question asked, or you may have asked this question, whose serve is it? Whose serve is it? Well, let me rephrase that question and take it away from the tennis court, the table tennis um, room or the volleyball court, and I want to bring it here to the Christian life. Whose turn is it to serve? Whose turn is it to serve? Well, Scripture, I think, will be pretty clear. The answer is this. It's my turn to serve. It's always my turn to serve, to serve God and to serve others. You know, everyone knows, believer or unbeliever, that Christians are called to be people who serve, people who express their love for and obedience to God by serving Him and others. And my friends, sometimes, if you're like me, it's sometimes the unbelieving world that helps me sometimes, in particular areas, remember what I am called to do. Because, yeah, the unbelieving world will reject the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. They will reject the fact that he had to die for people to be saved. But, oh, they know that Christians are to serve. So why aren't you serving? Why aren't you helping? It's interesting. The unbelieving world knows that Christians are people who are called to serve. But in our passage that we're going to look at this morning, we will see this idea of service turned around somewhat, for you see before Christians, that is people who are, who are um, trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Before they are called to serve, they are first called to be served. So the answer to the question, whose turn is it to serve, may not be the first one that comes to mind immediately, but rather one where the answer comes after some thought and reflection. Well, in our passage this morning, for the first time, we are not just told that Jesus will die, but why he will die. He says he will be, here he will begin to explain the meaning and purpose of his death. So join me as I read chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, that is Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared." And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. 
And Jesus called to them, called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our passage ends with verse 45. And on either side of Jesus' statement that he came to serve, Jesus tells us two additional things that he came to do that are related to his coming to serve. He came to teach his disciples, and he came to die for his disciples. Well, let's, let's explore first this idea that Jesus came to teach. Look with me again at this request of James and John. Remember the context. Jesus has just spoken of his death for a third time. Remember what happened after Jesus spoke, Peter wanted to distract Jesus from that calling. And then the second time that Jesus speaks of his upcoming death, the disciples are arguing over who's the greatest. And here, just to make it consistent, as it were, we see the disciples' response. James and John make a request. Look at the request, verse 35. Teacher, we want you to do for us Whatever we ask of you. Bold, but indirect. They're asking for a blank check. They want positions of rank, power, and prominence, and prestige in the kingdom. They, they want to be great, and they ask for glory. Before we dismiss them and their request, uh, let's think about the good. They understand that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. They clearly believe that he will be enthroned in glory. And they want to be there with him. But there's a bad side, of course, as well. They're still hung up on getting the place of honor and glory. They're thinking power. They're not thinking suffering and service. They have self-confidence and they possess vain ambition. And as we will see as Jesus instructs them, they also have confident ignorance. Jesus here is revealing their arrogance. He's revealing their ignorance. What do you think about verse 35? Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. How many of your prayers could be summed up like that? How many of us demand from God to answer our prayers according to the way we want them answered? They want Jesus to say yes before they ask their question. This is a distortion of true prayer because true prayer seeks to mold our will to God's, not God's will to ours. Well, Jesus responds to this request. 
And his response will continue to reveal their ignorance. Jesus responds, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know, in other words, that in requesting to participate in my glory, you're asking at the same time to share in my painful destiny, which is an indispensable condition of my glorification. Like Peter before them, They're looking for a crown without a cross. They're looking for glory without suffering. Jesus mentions two things in his response, the cup and baptism. Two images that are going to begin to reveal the purpose of his death. Jesus is beginning to talk about that he will be the one to bear God's wrath. Because throughout the Old Testament, there's this picture of the cup. The cup storing God's wrath at man's sin. And that's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus can honestly pray and say, if it be possible, can this cup be taken away from me? This cup of God's wrath stored up on account of man's sin. But he also speaks of a baptism representing here being overwhelmed by water, an image also of the wrath of God. Jesus is talking about his unique wrath-bearing death. Jesus is beginning to talk about the fact that he will bear God's judgment in order to save his people from it. Verse 38, Jesus says, Are you able... Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And the way it's worded is it expects a negative answer. But what did John, what did James and John do? What's their response? Are you able? What do they say at the beginning of verse 39? And they said to him, we are able. In other words, they say, yes, we are. Can. Sometimes the right answer for us is to say, no, we can't. No, we can't. They say, yes, we can. And he continues in verse 39 using the same metaphor of cup and baptism, but the images do not bear the same significance as when they apply to Jesus. James and John want to be on the right and left hand side of Jesus in his glory and the irony of this for those who know how the story ends is that there were indeed two men at the right hand and at the left hand of Jesus at the end at his crucifixion two thieves crucified by him because that for Jesus is the entrance into his glory suffering into glory Indeed, James and John have no idea what they are asking for. But indeed, sharing the cup and sharing the baptism, they indeed do. James, you may recall, was executed for his faith. The first martyr we read about in Acts 14 of the disciples. And John, the Apostle John, author of five New Testament books was exiled for his faith. Well, what? how did the other ten respond? Well, we read that the other ten became indignant with James and John, 
It's not because they are just looking at James and John saying, how dare you? It's how dare you ask that without us being in on the glory? In other words, Jesus has called them to be at peace with one another. In chapter 9, verse 50, but they are not at peace with one another. They are jealous. They are fearful. They are insensitive to this serious moment. And Jesus here, even though he's in the company of his disciples, is experiencing a cruel loneliness that will only get worse as he heads to the cross. One commentator, William Lane, looks at this and says this, quote, This also indicates the degree to which selfish ambition and rivalry were the raw materials from which Jesus had to fashion the leadership for the soon-to-be-established church. My friends, what encouragement for us that Jesus rescues sinners and builds his church through selfish, glory-seeking men and women who come to the cross and are reconciled to God. And then from there on are dying to their sin and pursuing holiness. You know, it's easy as we read this description of the disciples to laugh at them or to look down at them. But instead, I believe we should be asking this, what are we like they did? What are we missing right now? In what ways are we blind to who God is and how he works. Is that one of your prayers? Is that one of your prayers to go before the Lord and say, Lord, would you continue to make yourself known to me? Would you continue to make your ways known to me? We're not there yet. We're still seeing dimly. Let's continue to ask the Lord, Lord, show us our blindness Show us what we're missing. Show us what we're not yet getting. Jesus here teaches his disciples as he continues. First, what discipleship is not in verse 42, and then what discipleship is in verses 43 through 44. Here, Jesus is going to contrast greatness in the world with greatness in the kingdom of God because Jesus is saying in the world... Greatness equals power and authority. You read in verse 42, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus is just reminding them of the ways of the world. It's an exercise of power and authority. And there's an irony. In, in their request, the disciples have been imitating those who they undoubtedly despised. They wanted Messiah to throw off the, Ro the Roman rulers. And yet they're acting like the Roman rulers. And so Jesus has to continue to describe and teach what discipleship is. It's not like the ways of the world. Look at verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. It may be like this in the unbelieving Gentile pagan world, but it's not to be among you. He continues, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. 
and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. It is not like the ways of the world. Rather, the way of discipleship is shaped by the cross. Because in the kingdom of God, greatness, Jesus says, is becoming a servant and a slave. It is shaped by the cross. Because Jesus has said earlier, and he's saying again here, true greatness is measured by our service and seen not in how high we climb up the ladder, but rather how far down the ladder we climb and are prepared to climb for the sake of others. Years ago, we had a series in the Sermon on the Mount, and I believe it was entitled Life in the Christian Counterculture. It was a good title then for the Sermon on the Mount, and it's a good title for Jesus' theme of discipleship. This goes counter to the culture. Greatness is measured not in power, but rather in service. Well, Jesus is now going to shift the focus from the disciples to himself, because Jesus is not just a teacher, but as he will say and as he will do, he is a servant. We come now to verse 45, where the first half speaks of the fact that Jesus came to serve. Because in this statement, we are finally given insight into the purpose and reason for Jesus' death, why he had to die and what his death will actually accomplish. Jesus came. For even the Son of Man came. Jesus is using that favorite designation for himself. It's coming from Daniel chapter 7 of the Son of Man with authority, this divine human figure who has all authority. The Son of Man came. Well, Jesus has already said he's come to preach, to heal. He says, as recorded in John 10, 10, that he's come that you might have life. Jesus came into the world. In other words, he existed even before he was born on earth as the eternal son of God. And he came not to be served. It assumes that he had the right, but he did not exercise the privilege as we heard in our New Testament reading from Philippians Two, He came not to be served, but to serve. Again, the reversal of all human ideas of greatness and rank was made when Jesus came. And this simple, short verse presupposes a truth of staggering proportions. That Jesus is God. And yet he humbled himself as we sang a few minutes ago. Jesus came to serve. Whether it's with Mary and Martha, where Martha is scurrying around the kitchen serving, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet where he is actually serving a great feast from the word of God as he speaks. But then in John 13, we read of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Stooping low to serve. And even remarks that they observed what Jesus was doing, but they didn't understand it until later. All of those incidents of Jesus just described 
of him serving are preludes and pointers to this ultimate service that he's about ready to announce. For in coming to serve, Jesus is going on to say, he came to die. Jesus came to give his life. To give his life as a ransom. It's Old Testament language of the day of atonement, of Passover. Those didn't solve the problem, but they provided pictures of the coming reality. Ransom being a liberation from captivity through a payment. And that assumes that people are in captivity, are in bondage. And it shows us that Jesus sees our spiritual condition and that a price or a penalty has to be paid. And look at the little word for, a ransom for, in the place of, in the stead of. There's an exchange, there's a substitution. For who? For many, probably a direct reference to Isaiah 53, 12. He bore the sin of many. Many, all kinds of people, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, old and young, from this nation and that nation. Many. Jesus came as a substitute. And here, the New Testament writers will continue to expand this idea of substitution. Of substitution. The gospel teaches the self-substitution of God. John Stott, in his magnificent work, The Cross of Christ, says this, quote, The concept of substitution may be said, then, to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. What a helpful understanding of Jesus' substitutionary work in our place and on our behalf. Verse 45, it's a key verse because it's Jesus the King and Jesus the Servant as Redeemer and as Ransom, who He is and why He came. The death of Jesus is going to secure His people as well as shape discipleship. And Jesus' death is senseless unless we are truly and hopelessly lost held in the grip of sin and death. The good news is that John and the others really did come to an understanding of Jesus' intention. For in 1 John 3.16 we read this, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John. And James arguing for positions of prominence and place. And yet, through the ongoing work of the Lord, through the coming of the Holy Spirit, they understand. They understand. And so we've seen Jesus coming to teach about serving. Indeed, the Christian life is about serving. 
But we've considered he didn't come just to teach about service. He didn't just give the lecture on what discipleship looks like. He served. And we've recognized that in coming to serve, his greatest act of service was to give his life as a substitute in the place of and as a sacrifice on behalf of his people. Let's end by asking two questions. First, back to the title and the question that was asked at the beginning, whose turn is it to serve? Whose turn is it to serve? Well, before we can serve, first we have to be served. And that's where the rub is because this requires our death, death to our pride, death to our belief that we can somehow make ourselves right with God. It's the death of our conviction that we don't accept charity. Because my friends, if the gospel is anything, it is good news of charity from God. It's the scandal here of the gospel. It is God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves Because a Christian is someone who has been served by Jesus through his obedient death, his, excuse me, his obedient life, his sin atoning death, his sin and death destroying resurrection, and who is presently being served by his intercession at God's right hand and his assurance of his promised return. A Christian is someone who thus has the heart motivation and the inner strength to serve others because they have first been served and are being served by Jesus. Whose turn is it to serve? Jesus would say, it's my turn to serve. And when he serves someone, they in turn know that it's their turn to serve. Second, And finally, back to a question asked by Jesus. Earlier, Jesus had asked, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Here the question is this, once again. What do you want me to do for you? My friends, the answer you give to that question reveals what you understand about yourself and about Jesus who you are and who he is, what you can and cannot do, and what he alone not only can do, but does do for his people. When you find yourself being served by Jesus, you won't dare think of saying, Jesus, I want you to do anything I ask you to do. Rather, you'll say something along the lines, all I am And all I have is yours. You have bought me. You have paid for me. You have exchanged your life for mine. Use me for your glory and for the good of your people. My friends, ask yourself often this question. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Because the answer will drive you to the foot of the cross and it will drive you 
to the empty tomb, and it'll drive you to the throne of God where Jesus is at God's right hand interceding before you, before him for you. Whose turn is it to serve? What do you want me to do for you? Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word that shows us our arrogance, our ignorance, but it also shows your patience with us, your kindness to us. Father, we thank you that Jesus did not just say, do as I say, but he also says, do as I did. Father, we are called to give our life for others because we have first known that you have given your life for us. Father, would you enable us to mold and shape our prayers such that we are not asking for things that promote our glory, but things that promote your glory and the good of your people. Oh, Father, would you continue to be patient with your people? Would you continue to instruct your people? And would you continue to to push us all to see Jesus as the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, including us, for we pray in his name. Amen.